Ann and I want to say good morning to you this morning. Great to be with you here in Nacogdoches. I, I want you to know that I do know one of your members quite well. In fact, I officiated at his wedding, and that would be Rick Hurst. And uh, I just love having him as a friend. I mean, there is not a better one on this planet. And uh, when I grow up, I want to be just like Rick. <laughs> and I'm very pleased to be here. We want you to know that we are from Texas. Don't mistake that. We were both born in the capital city of Austin. We were both six weeks premature. I rolled my incubator up next to hers. And I said, at Seton Hospital, you are a babe. <laughs> and I was attracted to her then, only teasing, but met her uh, in college and did get married, as Roman said, about a week after we had uh, graduated. Went on to Dallas Seminary, and the rest is history, except got to include three kids in that. We've got three children. Uh, one works with Pine Cove, and uh, they have a 17 and almost 15-year-old, Reed. Some of you know Reed and Julie, who went to SFA. And Reed uh, frequented the school often. And then uh, we have a daughter who worked with Crusade, still does. She and her husband are in Orlando. They want to move to Tyler. Imagine that. They're coming over uh, sometime this summer. I'll talk about hospitality in a few moments and how we're going to absorb all that. And uh, then uh, we have Stephen, and Stephen is our third, and they have three boys like Laura and Howard have. He's, he's the only one of our children that's really not in ministry, but he loves Christ and uh, teaches a Bible study with the uh, people in the car industry. He's over 17 car dealerships, and I just want you to know that he gives us good deals on cars. And so let me just say up front, transparently, he is our favorite. It is wonderful to be with you guys this morning. Uh, I am so used to now preaching in restrictive countries with a translator, so this is so wonderful to be with you and to see the smiling faces out here at Grace Bible. This is great. I'm going to be in a passage that is pure gold. You've been uh, tracking through First uh, Peter, and we're going to continue to do that. Our passage is going to be in First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and uh, I want you to know that uh, the more I studied this, the more one thought, the more one thought uh, kept running through my mind. I wish someone had told me this passage when I had become a Christian at the end of my sophomore year in college. The reason I say that is because in this passage, you have a perspective that is giving to a believer who is uh, uh, moved into the world, perhaps. Uh, taken out of his comfort zone uh, and through a diaspora spread throughout that Roman world. And he's not uh, uh, as secure in his circumstances as he wish he was. And things are being taken away from him. And friendships are in a frenzy. And uh, people don't trust him because he's a Christian now. That's what happened to me. That's exactly what happened to Bobby, as I was called in those days. I was, uh, I was in a fraternity, and it wasn't a, a service fraternity, let me assure you. And uh, there wasn't a single person in that entire fraternity that loved Jesus. And here I come to Christ. 
and I had never experienced inexpressible joy as I had in coming to Christ then. My life changed, and it was all on my own. I heard the truth, but I saw people that were changed, and I was attracted to that. I said, Lord, I don't have what they have, and I put my trust in Christ on my own. And the first guys that I wanted to share with were, of course, my fraternity brothers, because I knew they were without Jesus. But I had such joy. For the first time, I was secure in a love that I, I had a hard time talking about. It was so real and effective in my life. And, and these guys at best would say, good. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're happy for you. See ya. And it was such a shock to me the way I was sort of uh, ostracized, still smiled at by the guys, but sort of put on hold to see what was really going on. Not invited, somewhat talked about, and abandoned a little bit. And it was a total shock to me. I wasn't prepared for it. I thought if, if I found the message of truth and life that is absolutely life-transforming, you would want to hear about it. But they didn't. It's kind of like flipping on a light. Ann and I spent 43 years in Houston, ministry, 32 years as a pastor. And so you flip on a light in Houston in a garage where there's a lot of heat and a lot of humidity and a lot of roaches. And what do those roaches do when you flip the light on in the garage? Man, they scatter. They scatter. They can't stand the light. They hide as quickly as they can. And that's what my fraternity brothers were doing with me when I was just saying, man, I, I've been loved for the first time in my life. Really deeply loved. And so Peter is going to do something for you and me today. He's going to give us a perspective. That's going to be verses 1 through 6. It's a, it's a proper perspective for you and me as we live in a world that is not our home. We're merely passing through. We're pilgrims in a foreign land. My citizenship, your citizenship, is not here really in America or Nacogdoches. Your citizenship, Philippians 3.20, is up there. And it's permanent. And we're waiting for him to come for us, who will transform us with his incredible power into his glorious, same resurrected body. And so we're living in this foreign land, aren't we? We need a perspective. How are we going to live? Well, Peter's going to tell us, and I wrote it down in your outline for you. And uh, the outline will probably be better than my talk, so that's why I put it down there. You'll probably want to hold on to that as I go through this, to be sure I'm honest. But... You see our purpose. You see our purpose. It's much like Christ's. And then you see he talks about our past. How you lived, Bob, in the past is your past. Satan may accuse you of what you did, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And people will ignore you and not love you and not invite you to be a part and enter into their life as much that don't know Jesus Christ. So I want you to have a perspective. How do you look at this world? How, what's the big picture? That's what we're going to talk about. And then, just like Peter, who had a fishing industry, he was the kind of guy that uh, was uh, eminently practical. He, he didn't go for big words. He went for real life. He was a guy that worked with fish and people and worked all night, blue-collar kind of guy, not erudite in his education with a lot of book learning. 
So he's a guy that's going to give us in the last five verses of this passage four commands. This is how to live now. I'm going to talk to you about perspective, he says, and he's going to reach deeply into the military scene so that we understand we're in a battle. But then he's going to give us these critically practical commands, not options, on how to live in a community, especially with each other, of blood bought believers. So that's kind of where we're going with this whole thing. And so I invite you to turn. I'm, I'm going to be using uh, the New American Standard Version. It's one that I began with when it first came out. Can you believe that? You know, when Jesus first came, that kind of idea. And so I'm going I'm to be uh, talking to you a little bit about the New American Standard from the New American Standard. But follow along with me if you have your smartphone. Just kind of flip that U version open. Or if you have an ESV, that's great too. Therefore, based on all of what Jesus has done for us in his death, his suffering, his resurrection, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh with this physical tent called a body, arm yourselves. There you go. Arm yourselves. Also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? We'll try to, we'll take a stab at it in a moment. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, speaking of us, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That's the contrast. It's perspective. Verse 3, for the time already past is sufficient for you to live like the world, essentially, to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, that lusts of men stated in verse 2, having pursued a course of sensuality, that's what you do in the flesh without Jesus. Lusts. Lusts is those out-of-proportion passions, not necessarily sex. No, just extreme passions in all areas that, may, that, that are contrary to the will of God, for example. Drunkenness. Talking about uh, wine actually bubbling over. That's the Greek uh, expression. Carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this... They are surprised, those people surrounding you, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, waste, life as a wash. And they malign you, they criticize you, they slander you, but they will give an account. No man gets away with anything before God. What you sow, you will reap. And Jesus, who is, is the one who will judge, John 5, 25, he's ready to judge the living and the dead the great white throne judgment. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. What does that mean? Well, let me just say quickly, that means those who heard the gospel message and believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But when this book was written, now they have already passed. They have already died. That's what that means. And so they, uh, that those who are judged in the flesh, these people who in the body are living for Christ, but they're judged by, by the world, and some have even been put to death. They may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now, in these, three, in these six verses, let's just retract for a moment, and then we'll hit those four commands in the last five verses. The perspective. How do you see this world? I'm asking every one of us today, how do we see this place called the world? The world is not necessarily, in the way the Greek mind referred to it as the cosmos, it is not the terra firma. 
It's not the ground that's called the earth. There's another word for that, geology gay, Greek word. No, it's talking about the thought process by which we think this life will be satisfied and life will work. And so Satan is perpetrating all of this world thinking as the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. By the way we pursue life, what is our perspective? And so what I want you to say is, what I want you to understand is this. To have a godly perspective is not to see this place as a playground for self-indulgence, for self-aggrandizement, for self-satisfaction. It's not just a place as a believer for you to just pursue things and become prosperous and say, good, and now I can retire. This place is not a playground, says Peter. He says it's a battleground. It is literally a battleground for the souls of men. Jesus is going to build his church, and he wants you with fervency and with vitality and with a controlled mind and focus to see this as a battleground through through which you need to be armed. Now look at this. This is what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh and he had purpose, I'm going to build my church, Matthew 16, 18, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And don't think of that as a negative posture. Think of that as an aggressive, positive posture. I'm going to move into this world and make a difference with the gospel of Jesus Christ by the word and by my life example. I'm going to move in the gates of Hades are not strong enough to defend against the powerful gospel. That's the meaning of Matthew 16, 18. We're on the move, folks, and so we need to arm ourselves. And that word for arm is a Greek word that's very specific, especially in the noun form. Six times it's used to refer to weapons of spiritual warfare, of actual armor. That word speaks of the Roman soldier in that day going out on the front lines with the Ephesians 6 armor. It speaks of taking that pike. It speaks of taking that shield. It's talking about the sword that's on his belt, that offensive weapon, the Word of God, Ephesians 6:17. All these kinds of things. Can you imagine a Roman soldier showing up in his rank with his platoon, his squad, without his proper armor? Oh, what a joke. And so it is for us as Christians not to have the perspective that we're in desperate need of the armor, that Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, that we be renewed in the spirit of our mind and put on the new self, that armor of God, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's what we're desperate for, that kind of perspective, to be renewed, to be about what Jesus Christ is about. Don't compartmentalize. One of the things we do a whole lot of work, as you know, overseas, and one of the things I've observed is that when I come back to the States, and I have seen this, we compartmentalize our Christianity. That's not the right perspective. We give to God this hour, or if Bob goes over, maybe just a little bit more. But you see, then we live for ourselves and what we want to do the rest of the day. We need to have the mindset of arming ourselves with the spiritual weapons of prayer, 
use of that offensive weapon, the Word of God, 2 Corinthians 10.4. That's what God wants us to do. Are you that way? Do you have that perspective? Is that your purpose? And then he says, hey, verse 2, we want to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for those out-of-proportion passions of just prosperity and a lot of possessions and, and just significance based on what other people think of us and security based about what we have, but for the will of God. That's perspective. For the time's already passed, and it has. It was for me, that's for sure. And uh, besides going, I'm not going to go into all this stuff, but you can see the catalog, the litany of some of the things that Peter lists. Well, let me just say this. All of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of the character of God, which is that benchmark, His glory. Glory being the expression of all of the attributes coming together the radiant effulgent glory of God. But I want you to know something. All of us have sinned. In fact, Paul, as he got older in 1 Timothy, he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. Folks, he didn't sin more outwardly. He was more self-aware of his sin than he had ever been before. That's what I call maturity in Christ. Are you there? That's the right perspective. Are you growing in that direction, more aware? I hope so. I hope you are. That's our past. And then there are people that are surrounding us. There are people who are surrounding us. And uh, I'm going to jump to this. And all this, they are surprised. They, the people in my fraternity, the people at your workplace, the people, relatives in your family that are kind of wondering, is he the real deal? Is he authentic, genuine? That's what people are looking for. And and sometimes they're going to talk about you. They're going to gossip about you. They're going to slander you. That's what it says. It says uh, in verse 4, you're not going to run with them anymore as you did in verse 3, but these excesses of dissipation, no, they're not going to be a part of your life, and they're going to malign you. The word malign is fascinating. It's actually the word, I don't usually do this, but it's uh, uh, blasphemeo. Well, obviously you know what that is, blasphemy. It's mocking something sacred. It's maligning. It's slandering. It's saying ugly, inappropriate words about something, uh, uh, someone. And they're going to do that about you. They're going to talk about you. And, uh, well, something just happened that, that uh, kind of uh, I wanted to share with you. This is actually a person that every single one of you know maybe not personally, but know about. If I just give you his first name, you're going to say, wow, I know who that is. His first name is Tim, and his last name is? No, go ahead. You know, you're saved, you're accepted by the, in the blood. Okay, just say it. Tim Tebow. That's who you know. He is a believer that is severely being maligned today. You know what? Uh, Tim uh, is playing in the farm system with the New York Mets, and he's just 1A, and he's playing for the Columbia Fireflies. <laughs> and uh, he happened last weekend, that's why this is fresh, he happened to be playing in Charleston, South Carolina, the River Dogs, and this is what they did. Every time Tim would get up to, uh, to bat, they would play the Hallelujah Chorus. Think they were worshiping, or do you think they were maligning the worship 
of Tim Tebow. The mascot, the dog, actually had the uh, black under his, he, he did this just for Tim. On one side it was John, and on the other side it was 316. And as they called it Tebowing, he would get down like this, the dog mascot. He would Tebow like you saw Tim do when he was in Florida and played for Denver, all these different things. He would get down like this and pray. That's Tebowing. And so the dog did that to make fun of Tim Tebow. And that team from South, from, uh, South Carolina just absolutely uh, reveled in the slander. It's going to happen to you. And I want to tell you something. There is not a person this side of heaven that is as true blue as Tim Tebow. You ought to hear him speak sometime. The guy's a phenom for Jesus. And he's doing stuff all over the world. But if you stand up for what's righteous, the roaches are going to scatter and malign you. I promise you that. They're not going to do that for Muslims. They're not going to be all upset about Muslims because Satan is working with the Muslims. Okay? Allah is not God. And so Satan, who's producing a counterfeit, is not going to let all of his roaches reproach Allah. So it doesn't happen. But whenever you mention, here's what you need to know that I didn't know. Whenever you mention Jesus Christ, hell is going to be brought to bear upon you. You can talk about church, you can talk about God, you can talk about world religions. Fine, you're accepted. But when you talk about Jesus, all hell breaks loose. Just want you to know that. So when you talk about him, do it in the power of the Spirit of God and do it in love, not to be accepted, but to build the church of Jesus Christ and watch God work. I'm going to close with an illustration of that. Oh, no, 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 no not now. In, in a few moments. I didn't want you getting your hopes up there too quickly. Okay, so uh, that, that gives us a perspective. And what I want you to see is that uh, uh, we, we are to live in light of that perspective in very, very practical ways. Uh, Peter says that Jesus is going to return. And in verse 7, it says the end of all things is near. Uh, reading Chuck Swindoll on this, I, I found it fascinating that he said, uh, not just the word imminent, we know that that means at any time, at, it's near, the, the door is about to be knocked upon, uh, but he said it's like this, the stage is set, and Jesus is just waiting for the Father to say, go for us, his bride. Isn't that great? Well, the stage is set, and what should we do in light of that? We know that the, the unbelievers are going to be accountable to God, but we know that we need to live now in light of His imminent go-almost-return. How should we live? Well, I'm going to give you four, not uh, from my way of thinking, but from God's way of thinking, as Peter tells us. The first one is given in verse 7. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Uh, what is he saying here? Peter is saying, number one, this is a command, by the way, not just a nice alternative thought of behavior. We're being told these things in the imperative mood of command. So what Peter is saying is, don't be a panicky believer. Don't live life in a panic. Don't be a reactive person. Don't be a person that gets in the doldrums by watching the nightly news. You ever do that? 
Come on, if you're honest, it can kind of upset you. It does my wife. I just want to confess that on, on her behalf. <laughs> Will I get in trouble for that, hon, later? But, you know, you really can. You can look at circumstances. Maybe the person that you wanted in the White House or in some Senate or House seat was not elected. And life has gone down the drain. Listen, our trust is not an elected official. This is not our citizenship, recall. It's heaven above. We're only passing through. Let's make an impact. So don't live life in a panic. That's what I'm saying to you. Use good judgment. Uh, there are going to be natural disasters. But use sound judgment. The word that's actually used here is the word that's used in 2 Timothy 1.7. The last thing Paul said was uh, in chapter 1, verse 7 in that book, he said, Timothy, uh, let's see, what does he say? Uh, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, a lack of courage, but of power and love and discipline in the New American Standard. The word for discipline is the same word for sound judgment here. It's the way of controlling, of corralling, of bringing together your thoughts in a disciplined manner. So be sober, obviously be alert, the absence of drunkenness, you all know that, but we don't use it that way so much as we just think of be sober in your thought process. Be biblical, renew your mind in what's right. That's what you need to do. And you can't pray when you're panicking. And we need to have people in the body of Christ who are of sound judgment, and instead of panicking, pray. Turn things over to God. Walk in dependence, and prayer suggests that more than anything else. Um, I've got an illustration of this that, that really hits home with me, and, and I realize I don't have a whole lot of time here, so I've got to scoot through this. But Ann and I have finally sold our home in Houston. And, and the couple from Colorado that wants to buy it wanted to close much later, 100 days later, than we had anticipated. And they said, would you please do this for us? And so that means two homes, and some of you have experienced that as well. It's not a whole lot of fun. But in the process for the closing on July the 7th in Houston, we discovered through an appraisal that was recently done that the housing market has plummeted in Houston. And so they're going to borrow, besides putting the 20% down and all that kind of stuff, they're going to borrow based on the appraisal that has gone down $20,000. What do you do when you hear that kind? Oh, Lord, thank you. I knew that you were going to test me with money. And I'm just, I just want to rejoice in that. Is that what you do? Or do you like me? Or you like me and go, what? I was depending upon that $20,000. I turned it over to the Lord. And I got on our knees. We really did. Not the first day. <laughs> the next day. And you know what? We really said, Lord, it's yours. I'm sorry, Father, I've lived long enough to see that you really do provide everything we've ever needed in abundance. We've never hurt for a thing. And you're going you're gonna to continue to do that. So it's yours. I want to give it back to you. $20,000 less. <laughs> I did. I did. That's what I said. And you know what? The next day we got a call. Hey, Bob from our agent, Clint, called and said, Bob, we got a cash buyer. And you don't need an appraisal with a cash buyer. And he said, so they now are, we're competing, and it got, went right back up to the same price, and the people are going to buy it for the original price. God took care of me. That doesn't happen always. But my point is, don't panic, pray. And look what happened with us just this last week. Incredible. And so uh, that's what we want to do. And then uh, I've got to move through this 
what's the second one here in First Peter uh, chapter 4? It's verse 8. The second command, how should you live practically with the right perspective? Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. When our youngest son got married, and I had the joy, the joy, each of them asked me to marry them. Can you believe that? And uh, love those crazy kids. And uh, so Stephen said, Dad, would you please marry Janice and me? And I said, it'd be my joy to do that. Uh, the rehearsal dinner, Las Colinas, where she is from up there in Dallas and uh, Carrollton area. And uh, so there were 91 people there that evening. I remember that because I had to pay for them. And uh, <laughs> so here they are, and, and people are saying the things that they're saying, and uh, real nice and all this stuff, relatives and uh, people that have known them. And uh, it comes down to the end, and Stephen, Stephen comes up kind of walks around with a microphone, ends up right beside me, puts his hand on my shoulder, and I'm saying, oh, God, if there's ever a need for me to pray, it's right now. I don't know where he's going with this because he's kind of unique in ways. <laughs> and Stephen looked at me. He said, Dad, thanks for never giving up on me. Are we fervent in our love for one another in our own families? How about someone that really is snide, carpingly critical, slanderous toward us? Are we giving up on them? Are we showing them the devoted, fervent love of Christ? The word for fervent really does mean it's a muscle picture of a, of a strain within a muscle. You know, when, you're, when your muscles are taut and, and, and they're stretched out to the max, that's the picture of fervency. You're really working, straining, struggling to stay with it. Thanks for never giving up on me. Is there an unbeliever in your life, a relative that you've written off that you need to communicate with? Say, hey, just wanted to reconnect. Uh, so fervently love. Be hospitable to one another. That's the next one. Be hospitable, gosh, to one another without complaint. Sometimes I'm hospitable, but I gripe about the money it costs me and the time. But I do. I just want to be upfront with you about that. Because, you know, I just, I think of family. I told you, I'm like, well, if they bring their whole family of five over with three boys, you know, I think of these ravenous German shepherds at the table. Have you ever given raw meat to a German shepherd? You know, they don't taste it. They just swallow it. That's it. That's the way I think. So I think, well, I can just hear the ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching of the cash register. Now, I hope you're not like me. I hope you're better than me. But, you know, I really have to renew my mind. With I want to be hospitable without complaint. No regret, no resentment that I can give that which God is really God's. He owns it all, says Psalm, Psalms. And so I'm going to hold it like this rather than like this. Okay, And so that's what God wants me to do, to be hospitable with people, to really open my home. And, to, and I, I wrote down this, not just open my home, but open my heart and open my hand. That's what it means to me. That's what God wants me to do. And then last of all, and I really need to quit on this, uh, verses 10 and 11 are two of my favorite verses in First Peter. Because uh, as I have it in your outline, we are to serve one another the way God has gifted us. One of the great joys for our church, what I did in those years, I developed a great adventure week-long seminar on spiritual gifts. 
You know, there are four places in the New Testament for spiritual gifts. Two are twelves and two are fours. First Corinthians 12, Romans 12, uh, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. And verse 11 and 12 always begin with these verses because what Peter does is say in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the uh, people ignoring you or not acknowledging you or even hurting you physically, what I want you to do is have the right perspective and what you need to do, just like Joseph in, in the Egyptian prison for those 13 years, the best years of his life, we would say, from 17 to 30, he served the cupbearer and the baker. So what Peter is saying in the midst of the suffering, keep that perspective and serve and do it according to the way God at the moment of your salvation gave you a spiritual gift. And then he breaks them down into two categories, serving, speaking. I like that. For you, which is it? You may not know of the 19 gifts specifically, and we're not going to try to cover them this morning. But I want you to start thinking, as you are Grace Bible Church here in Nacogdoches, how does God want to use you? And it's not just to warm a pew. It's to serve and to build up, to contribute to the body of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you, think about, do you really want to communicate? Do you want to say something like Livesay wants to do, you know? Or do you want to serve, kind of be a little bit more behind the scenes, and not one that studies as much, but just is in connection with people to make everything run so well? I want you to consider that because Peter says, get after it. Get after it. The best thing to do when you're focused on yourself and suffering is to get out of yourself by serving. Did you hear that? The best thing you can do when you're focused on yourself through suffering is to get out of yourself by serving. That's what God wants each of us to do. Well, those are the verses. And I just want to close with this kind of passage, this kind of illustration. I got this from a book written by Chuck Colson years ago. It's about a guy by the name of Dr. Boris Kornfeld. He was a Jew that had actually uh, become a completed Jew, having trusted in the Messiah Jesus through a prisoner in the same gulag or Russian prisoner, prison camp in uh, Siberia. He would do medical work upon the guards, which they demanded, and the prisoners, which they requested. Dr. Boris Kornfeld had an interesting young man brought to him who had been wounded, and uh, he began to work on him and did all he could for him. And then that evening, Dr. Boris Kornfeld, who was born again, a Jew, to becoming a fulfilled one. And that evening, he sat by the cot of this young soldier who was in recovery. And Boris Kornfeld shared with him his recent conversion. His recent conversion to Jesus Christ. And the young soldier took it in, kind of in and out with anesthesia, recovering. But it took. But something happened. That night, Dr. Boris Kornfeld lay down in the hall in order to sleep. And uh, one of the Russian shoulders took a mallet and bludgeoned his head eight times and he died. 
But what came to life was what Boris had passed on to that young soldier. That young soldier put his trust in Jesus Christ, and he turned out to win the Nobel Prize. His name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Peter is simply telling us this. You never know what's going to happen in an atmosphere of suffering. The rejection, the ridicule, the slander, the blasphemy. But in it all, God is at work. Just like with the life of Dr. Boris Kornfeld. Just like in the life of Jesus Christ who armed himself with the purpose of giving in order to gift us with salvation. Good will come out of the way you live in the midst of difficult times. Don't keep your eyes on yourself. Get out of that through serving and bring all glory to Jesus Christ as we're instructed to do at the end of verse 11. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us gold called Scripture that lasts, that changes us, that causes us to have an eternal perspective and a practical way of living today. We thank you, Father. Continue to work in us as we not just appreciate your word, but long to abide in it and live it, no matter what the conditions may be, wherever we are in this world. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.